Hi, everyone, and welcome to The Smartest Doctor in the Room. I'm your host, Dr. Dean Mitchell. On this podcast, as many of my loyal listeners know, we tend to speak about specific areas of medicine, you know, the latest tests, the latest treatments. Today's podcast is quite a different story. The topic is going to be what a near-death experience, or NDA as we'll refer to probably later on, can teach us about living. My guest today, Dr. Eben Alexander, has been an academic neurosurgeon practicing at Harvard-affiliated hospitals and then later in Virginia for 25 years. But Dr. Alexander came to my attention and to many others with the publication of his uh, first book, Proof of Heaven. Sorry, whoops, wrong one there. I have it right here. Proof of Heaven which a neurosurgeon's journey into the afterlife. As I hope you're going to appreciate our discussion today, this is just an incredible story of an ordinary man, but an extraordinary doctor who takes us back through his journey into the afterlife while he was in a coma for seven days. All I can say is you'll find out when we discuss this a little bit more in depth that this book changed my life 12 years ago. And I am so honored and privileged to welcome Dr. Eben Alexander to the podcast. Well, Dean, thanks so much for having me on. It's a real joy to be with you here today. Thank you so much. Um, so we're going to talk about a lot of things. We're not going to give away a lot of things about the book because I do want people even to go back and read it. Um, but I think I want to ask you this first, Dr. Alexander. You and I both, as physicians, have cared for patients in intensive care units during our careers. You as a, a neurosurgeon, myself as during my internal medicine training. And I know for sure that I cared for patients that were in coma and I never gave a thought, really one single thought at the time where their mind was or their soul was until years later after reading your book. But just to begin with for our listeners, how would you define or explain an NDE and your death experience um, I think yeah. yeah, I think the best way to put it, a near-death experience is um, something that happens when we're very close to death. Uh, in my case, of course, it was a, an advanced uh, gram-negative bacterial meningoencephalitis involving all eight lobes of my brain. But any number of things can get you there and, uh, and have for the last many thousands of years, as you know, literally millions and millions of people have reported uh, these kind of events. But what they involve is for one thing, a sense of really being alive. I mean, we're used to uh, kind of a certain uh, pace of information flow with our nervous systems and our daily existence in these bodies. And that is something that is completely violated in an NDE. You get a, a kind of a, a much bigger flow of conscious awareness. You seem to elevate up out of space and time uh, and it often involves, in fact, I would say if you read Gregory Shushan's work uh, on ancient cultures uh, and NDEs in those cultures, uh, they have the very same reports as current reports, and that is of encountering the souls of departed loved ones. That is one of the most uh, prominent hallmarks of an NDE, is loved ones who have left the physical plane come to welcome us into that realm. Now, in addition, uh, in many ways, we kind of come in connection with a higher uh, kind of aspect of self, a higher soul, if you will. Uh, and that, that was something that to me uh, was really kind of extraordinary. And not only that, we seem to be entering a different realm. Uh, and of course, there's a lot of talk of, say, a tunnel or, or moving from darkness into light. Uh, and then, of course, the whole a kind of giant gift of encountering uh, a God force. So basically the force of an infinitely loving, uh, uh, kind of wise uh, source of awareness that seems to be at the very uh, kind of origin of our, of our own very conscious awareness. So, uh, and then of course you have things like the life review, which is very commonly described in NDEs and has been a, uh, reported in 25 to 50% of them going back in most series. So, yeah, you know, you know I'm going to stop you there for one second, only because you've done <laughs> almost my entire podcast in the first two sentences explaining it incredibly well because all these questions that I was going to ask you. But I want to back up for a second because obviously it is chilling what you're saying and very deep and profound. But from 
also just, an, I guess, an observational um, perspective. You know, again, as I was mentioning, when, you know, people are in ICUs or people go into cardiac arrest, you know, there it's their heart stopping possibly for a few seconds or a few minutes. Does time play a, a role in how, I guess, phys- well, can physicians diagnose, a, 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 you know, or does it really have to be the patient that says, have, they've had an NDE. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, do you have to well, it's really up to the patient because it's, it's patient. This is a, an internal experience. This is within phenomenal awareness, within the mental space. Okay. And I think that's the part that's very important to get. You know, for those of us standing at the bedside, seeing a body in coma or seeing somebody right. die, uh, you know, that's where we get this idea that they're gone, that they're ended, that that's, you know, right. they're no longer consciously aware because they're not interacting with us anymore. Right. And yet that's kind of the opposite of what actually happens. Uh, you become quite aware. And not only that, you become aware outside of kind of this notion of here and now. That's why, I mean, to put this in perspective, when we're talking about just how grand an experience this is, remember that life reviews, which have been described going back thousands of years across all cultures, um, are extremely common. And not only that, but when when you hear people describe what that is like, there it's not as if they're remembering these events of life. It's as if they're reliving these events of life. People often describe how real it is, much more detailed. Uh, it's almost like they can interact with the scene and change the outcome of it. I mean, these are all extraordinarily rich journeys into a realm where our mental space is no longer is kind of constricted and confined as we're used to in this realm. But to be able to experience all the major events of your life and not only from and and the important thing is not from your perspective. Uh, It's often described as from the perspective of those around you who were affected Wow. by your actions and even your thoughts. So it's almost like oh. the movie, you know, because sometimes in the movies, they almost get this right, it sounds like. You know, I I, I, I didn't, I was going to talk about this later on. I did meet somebody that had an NDE. He was in a coma, I think, for two or three weeks. He came out a totally different person. But when we, we would talk, you know, about his experience, he would say it's a little bit like that movie Ghost, like where he, like when he was in this car accident and his body was burned and everything too, he, it's sort of like he sort of float above, you know, his existence. And he saw the doctors doing compressions and shocking his system. And, you know, all these things that you think, obviously, nobody, you know, that's only in the movies. But right. maybe it isn't. Well, I, I think, you know, they are definitely getting it right. That there's a, an ability to experience uh, one's entire life on the other side. Uh, and, and this is where the important, I think the question you were getting at about time is very important. And that is that there is a different ordering of time that you need to invoke from the perspective of near-death experiences that's much more kind of wide open and broad that would allow for people to simultaneously experience all the events of their life, kind of birth to death, and uh, and go through that in a sense of reliving them, in a sense of gleaning the value of any lessons, of realizing if they were busy handing out pain and suffering to others, the life review teaches you that's not very pleasant. Mm -hmm. In many ways, the life review is almost neutral, except it happens in this background of this infinitely loving force, this God force that so many NDEers describe. But other than that, it's really just that you witness uh, the events of your life, but you feel it from the perspective of those who were affected by your thoughts and actions. So it's, I like to put it, it's like uh, showing that we are sharing the dream of the one mind and that the boundaries of self are a fiction. They are, you know, we think when we're sitting here in these bodies and these brains, that we have an isolated mental space, that all of my thoughts are mine only. My you know, phenomenal experience is mine only. I can describe it to other people, but they can't really share in it. But what you find in an NDE is that we have a lot of kind of shared experience and that this is about violating the, the typical standard where we feel like we're a self uh, in a here and now uh, and showing us, no, we're much grander than that. In fact, we're much more than everything that happens birth to death in one incarnation. Life reviews often involve references to uh, uh, other lifetimes that contribute to that knowledge. So it's just a much bigger theater of operations than I ever would have thought was necessary before. And yet it explains so much when you take this bigger worldview into account, realize our brain is not creating consciousness as much as serving as a filter 
filter for it and allowing this primordial consciousness, that primordial mind consciousness into our awareness in this tiny little trickle of here now and sense of self. You know, God, every sentence that comes out of your mouth is like, just really, honestly, is like very profound. Um, you know, I, you know, when I was in college uh, at Brown University, I, besides studying for medicine, I studied literature, you know, and mm-hmm. uh, I took some philosophy courses and stuff like that. And then into my career, you know, so a lot of the pain, as we all know, physicians suffer from taking care of patients, from seeing so much tragedy, definitely pointed me in that spiritual direction. And I, for quite a while, I studied a lot of Eastern, you know, philosophy, meditation. It ended up actually eventually bringing me back to my own roots in Judaism, where I got very interested in Kabbalah, which deals a lot with spirituality. Absolutely. I'm just curious, you know, and we hopefully we'll get to talk about that a little bit, but I'm just curious if you think that there's any literature out there, not necessarily specific about MDE, but about, you know, in philosophy, in I think we want to call it religious or spiritual text that helps to give someone a basis to prepare for this. Do you know what I'm saying? Because like, again, you were through, you mentioned in your book, which I think was so amazing. Here you're this amazing neurosurgeon. Admittedly, I guess you go to church once a week, but not really very spiritual or religious in any which way. And all of a sudden this experience threw you into, you know, this other whole realm. But if someone were to say, if they're fearful of death, if they've lost a loved one, is there, are there ways to prepare you to open your mind to this? I mean, just. Well, I mean, I think there are numerous books of, of, of recent publication that so I recent think. Recent stuff. Not, 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 you know, again, nobody, you don't think anybody got it right back, you know, a hundred oh, years ago or, or well, you know, whether you know, it's the being, Buddhists or the, you know, the Jewish religion. I don't know. You know or no, any no, other religions. Let, let's let's kind of reset okay. this for just one okay, second. Sure. I would say one thing that's become crystal clear to me in the 14 years since my NDE, working with scientists around the world, mm. trying to come to a deeper understanding of brain-mind connection, the nature of reality, fundamental nature of consciousness, et cetera, is the big uh, realization that in many ways they got it right thousands of years ago. They did. So the, mm. the Kabbalah, the, uh, uh, you know, a lot of the ancient Hindu, the Vedas, mm. um, mm-hmm. uh, uh, Buddhist uh, work. I mean, a lot of this was focused right on this deep, profound, powerful truth of oneness, of shared mm-hmm. mind, mm-hmm. Of, uh, of the binding force of love. So I don't want to pretend mm-hmm. that there weren't uh, great spiritual leaders in the past from all different faiths. And this is important to point out. Mm. We, we so much, you know, it's kind of like politics. We kind of define our religious uh, um uh, you know, the church we go to or the synagogue or what have you. Uh, and, and then it's like a battle between ideologies. And what I also came to realize is that there is some deep truth to all the great faiths, but right. that none of them have it just right. Mm. And that, in fact, NDEs uh, shape this conversation. And the more modern science studies NDEs, the more they point out the reality uh, of what NDEers tell us, which is the most important thing to get as a human being in living this life, is that we're bound together through forces of unconditional love and to manifest kindness, compassion, acceptance, mercy, and when necessary, forgiveness. And there's really nothing else we need to know except never forget gratitude for every single breath of this existence. And that was Mm -hmm. something I obviously came to know fully. But importantly, that, you know, religions can be a source of great spirituality for people. Uh, Often in their deepest meditative traditions, they are. Um, And I would say that to the extent that any religions hew close to this notion of love and compassion, kindness, acceptance, mercy for all fellow beings, then they're fine. But you know, I think they- that unfortunately, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I think unfortunately, and I, I agree with you 100% that unfortunately, in some cases, religion, whether it's Judaism, Christianity, I don't know about Buddhism, it became political, became well, very ritual, right? And I think that's what, I think that's what, you know, the, 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 our recent generations are craving for spirituality right. because, you know, it's like, oh, just because you didn't go to temple this week, you didn't go to church this week, oh, you're a bad person, you know, all these things. When, again, your book, and I think the true 
if you want to call them the masters of this understanding, it's a it's at a such a more universal or deeper level. What I want to ask you is this though, because you, you know, again, you're always leading me into my next question. You know, love and prayer, and you mentioned in the book. I, I you know found it so chilling that you know when you were uh, in the coma, you know, your wife, your sisters, your minister came together and prayed while you were in coma. And I want to ask you again. I know you probably have done so much thinking about this and research after what your thoughts are on the power of prayer, how it affects people in the afterlife and, you know, and, and how praying for somebody when they're ill, you know, cause a lot of times, you know, people say, Oh, I pray for you. They just kind of like a reflex or, uh, you know, I, I generally feel, you know, feel that way when I know someone is ill and I go through my own process. It's almost like a meditative process, you know, but back in the day, I would have thought that's useless. Why, why should I do that? And, and obviously Larry Dossie has done some very interesting work showing, you know, when people pray for someone, even if they don't, the person who's being prayed for doesn't know it. And the people that pray for them don't know the person, they have better results. So I was just curious about your idea about prayer. And well, I think, I think prayer actually has a tremendous amount of power. Now, you have to be careful. I love Larry Dossie's book, Be Careful What You Pray For, because mm-hmm. you know, he makes it very clear there's a lot more power than most people seem to think in prayer. Right. Uh, and uh, to me, it was very obvious because I was kind of the recipient of, of those prayers coming out. That's why I described that whole uh, incredible oh, scene there in heaven of being aware of thousands of beings going out in the distance. Mm-hmm. Now, know that in my mind, I don't believe there was ever any scene on Earth of thousands of people praying together for my return. I know there were prayer groups that my siblings and friends had set up. uh, But but that was just a vision that I had from within my coma uh, that I take very seriously because it was so absolutely astonishing and real. But it just showed, it described to me uh, the power of this prayer energy coming from all these beings Mm. that was ushering me back to this world. Mm-hmm. And I think the important thing to remember here is, you know, this whole discussion very deeply is about the mind and about the material world, the mind, uh, the brain, you know, phenomenal experience and what happens in our emerging reality. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that that is very important because that's the philosophical uh, kind of concept that we're focusing in on and trying to gain some understanding of is mind and matter. We have this perceived universe out there, and then we have what we assemble as our collection of information about the physical universe, the arrangement of, say, atoms, molecules, cells, and brain, etc. cetera. Uh, but what you have to realize is that uh, and this is something we go into great detail in our third book about. The third book is called Living in a Mind for Universe, and yes, that is that true one proof of yes. heaven. That one goes far, far, oh, far. Oh, really? I'm getting, oh, I'm getting excited. That's going to be my next read. Okay. Well, listen, that one is all about the science, the spirituality, how they're coming uh-huh. together. But in that book, we go into great detail about the mind-body question and the relationship mm-hmm. of the brain to phenomenal experience. Now, as an example, I'd like to point out to people that placebo effect, you know, that's been a gold standard in medical uh, assessment for the last six or seven decades. Right. And placebo effect, you know, randomized controlled placebo controlled trials are nothing more than an acknowledgement by the medical profession. When you dig deep, now, some people are kind of fooled by placebo and say, oh, it's only placebo. But to those who really study it, and if you're watching what's going on and watch all these trials and what's actually happening here about proving, you know, the utility of a certain medication or what have you versus showing our abilities to heal, what you find is that we have a tremendous power of mind over matter. Our beliefs, thoughts, and attitudes have an extremely important role in dictating our emerging reality. This is why it's so crucial to be careful what you believe. And, you know, there's that old saying from Kierkegaard that uh, there are two ways to be fooled. One is by uh, believing what is not true. And the other is, is by refusing to believe what is true. And I think that's where the real kind of essence of belief comes to the fore. And you have to realize that our world is in very large measure allowing you to separate conscious awareness from kind of the brain body and that sense of here now and sense of self. And uh, this is where I think it becomes very interesting when we realize that power of mind over matter, because if you, for example, let's move beyond placebo effect, which unquestionably is a giant part of modern medicine and basically tells us that there's probably at least a 30 percent benefit just to someone's belief that they're doing something that can make them better. 
And uh, but it goes far beyond like a sugar pill and a headache, as I said. For example, if you go to noetic.org, the Institute of Noetic Sciences right. website, mm-hmm. put in the search term spontaneous remission, right. Very interesting. you'll find a book they published back it's in the mid-90s. It was great. I read that book. It was terrific. Yeah, fantastic. And and Helena Wabe, who works at IONS now, is up grading that whole database because that database is 30, you know, almost 30 years old. So it is high time. Well, well one of the things I actually want to say, I'm just going to jump in again once I do this, that I think, again, also what's so important, again, is how a doctor, in, you know, in our cases, you know, relates to a patient. Because again, when, when a doctor comes with very negative, oh, your prognosis is terrible, uh, you know, whatever, I don't, da, 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 this affects the patient. They, they go to Absolutely. die. And totally the other does. thing, which is fascinating, this other patient, this other person that I met that was in, had the NDE, who was in a coma for two or three weeks, he told me also, he heard everything going on in the ICU. When mm-hmm. he, he was actually from a foreign country and did, knew very little English when he came here and he was in an accent, um, um, when he came, when his accident. And when he came out of the coma three weeks later, Later, he was speaking some English and his wife said to him, how are you talking English? Like he said to the nurse, could you get me a drink? She goes, how can you say that in English? He goes, I, I heard them. And you know, that again, that, that gave me chills. I mean, I remember how many times we were around the bedside and you know, sometimes someone would make a remark or whatever, you know, and not realizing, you know, maybe a person can hear this. Well, you know, there are cases in the NDE literature of, of, a flagrant xenoglossy. Xenoglossy is when when somebody speaks a language that they've never been taught and never known before. And in the NDE literature, you will find uh, examples of people who come out of an NDE and speak languages they've never spoken before. Uh, So it's, uh, you know, that's just part of this this huge package of understanding. And, And just in case your audience is not aware, this is very, very important. But there was a contest last year by Robert Bigelow. Bigelowinstitute.org is where you can get to the answers. And the contest was to answer the question, what's the best scientific evidence uh, for the uh, ongoing consciousness beyond permanent bodily death? And uh, they received uh, more than a thousand uh, uh, people wanting to enter the contest. Uh, and then they demanded that uh, you demonstrate at least five years experience scientifically investigating the afterlife. And out of that, they got 204 papers. Some were written by more than one person. Uh, and they awarded 29 prizes. Originally, they were only going to give out first, second, third prize. Uh, but the, they were so impressed with the quality of the essays uh, that they gave out 29 awards. And those essays are available for free to the public right now. Oh, wow. Go read at BigelowInstitute.org. If you just start with Jeffrey Mitchlov's winning place, first place essay, you'll see what I mean. This is all extremely powerful evidence. In fact, you read any of these papers and you'll never doubt the reality of the afterlife or the possibility of the afterlife. Again, if you read all the papers, you'll think anybody who doesn't know there's an afterlife is just willfully ignorant. Uh, It's beyond, you know, this is beyond, will science answer this question tomorrow? Right. Science has already answered this question. Yeah. So if you care about it, go read the essays at BigelowInstitute.org and you'll realize absolutely there's an afterlife. Not only that, uh, but reincarnation is very powerful. I was just about to ask you about that. What, what, yeah, what's your, your thoughts, uh, if you could tell, about reincarnation? Obviously, in a lot of religions, and I shouldn't say a lot, in some religions, it's a belief. I didn't, again, I didn't even know my own religion, Judaism, that, you know, in the Kabbalah, they believe in it. In the regular right. mainstream, they really don't. It's, right. you know, well, What's your thoughts? That, well, that's that's the good point. And it turns out, you know, before my coma, I thought, you know, I was, uh, you know, intellectually, I had done a fair amount of reading and study, you know, as an academic neurosurgeon. But I realized there were huge gaps in my knowledge. Mm-hmm. And one of them, because when I came back from my coma, my the visions I had in the core of what I call the, the, the uh, flying fish vision and the Indra's net vision were very powerful, uh, complete images of how reincarnation and life reviews work. I mean, because, you know, one of the atypical features of Evan Alexander's near-death experience was I had no personal memories of Evan Alexander's life, which initially in the weeks after coma, I explained because I knew I'd had this horrific uh, meningitis that would have wrecked my neocortex. So to me, it made perfect sense. When I woke up, I had no memories of my life. All I remembered was where I'd just been. Now, the memories of life came back rapidly. I mean, in fact, I didn't even have language during the during the journey. 
Uh, but my language came back over hours, my childhood and personal memories over a week and two, uh, all my semantic knowledge, physics, cosmology, neuroscience over about two months. Uh, but that return of information was so extraordinary the way it happened. And in fact, in the book, Living in a Mindful Universe, we have a big discussion about how memories are not even stored in the brain. That's one of the biggest nails in the coffin of material wow. science. And yet there it is plain and what, simple. What do you mean by that? What do you mean that memories are not stored in the mind? That if you look for, as a neurosurgeon, if you try and find out where memories to store in the brain using electrical stimulation, using... Right you know, ablation studies, uh, head injuries, uh, strokes, et cetera, to kind of map out the function, right. use uh, functional MRI, magnetoencephalography, et cetera, et cetera, to the ends of the earth, all the tools we have right. for looking at the brain. What you find is there's no place in the brain where memories are stored. They simply right. are not. Mm -hmm. uh, I would have thought, you know, before my coma, that uh, they have, have to do heavily with uh, with engrams, with um, neural network traces nice, all nice. throughout the neocortex. And yet, you know, um, Wilder Penfield, one of the most renowned neurosurgeons uh, in the 20th century, he was Canadian. Uh, he wrote a book in 1975 called The Mystery of the Mind. And it was at the end of his career. And he had spent probably more of his career than any other neurosurgeon on earth, stimulating the brain in awake patients, mapping out phenomenal relationship to the brain stimulation, all that kind of thing. And what he came to realize at the end of his life is that consciousness and free will are not in the brain at all. He realized that he could stimulate uh, the brain and he could make you, you, he could, you could feel like a puppet, but you knew that that, Dr. Penfield, the neurosurgeon, was manipulating your, your thoughts and experiences with an electrode probe. And never once could he fool you into believing that he'd uncovered some memory that was related to a given brain region. Now, when you we discuss a lot of that literature in Living in a Mindful Universe, so people who are interested, we go into mm. great detail about that because it is very important. Very but cool. in his book, uh, Wilder Penfield, 1975, Mystery of the mind makes it crystal clear with probably 20 or 25 different quotes that the brain is not the producer of consciousness. And he said, as a neuroscientist investigating brain, what a beautiful gift to find at the end of the day that we are truly spiritual beings and that the spirit, you know, the spiritual nature. Well, I want to ask you this then, too, because, again, yeah, in my study of Kabbalah, you know, one of the um, the head um, teachers always talks about conscious, consciousness is everything. That's their mantra a little bit, right. which is fascinating. But where is this consciousness coming from? You're saying it's coming from our soul? Is it coming? Because like, again, when I, when I hear that, it's a consciousness, everything, that makes me think, well, you know, Dean, you know, be, be, you know, be conscious, be appreciative. You know, if I get to heal or help some people today in my office, you know, Dean, you know, when you're dealing with your family, be, you know, instead of, because they talk about, actually, they talk about it in Kabbalah, they talk about like basically the the evil or negative inclination and, you know, the more positive side. It almost, it's like in the little, you know, the, TV, the 70s TV shows, like, you know, you have the, the devil on one shoulder, the, right. the angel on the other. And, you know, of course it's all, you know, made simplistic, but, but the idea that, yes, can, you can with your consciousness go down a negative pathway and then probably just cause more negative things. It, you what are you saying? Yeah, certainly can. I think Kabbalah is definitely right on target, as are some other, you know, the mystical traditions of all the great faiths mm -hmm. come to some tremendous agreement about this nature of reality. And certainly afterlife and reincarnation are front and center. They just go, of course, we left that behind millennia ago. Uh, but that's where those Bigelow Institute papers will be very interesting to people because they will present all the evidence from the modern era that proves the reality, not only the afterlife. But I, I, to try to answer your question, I think it's important to kind of simplify our view of things. Okay. And that simplification is one of acknowledging uh, that, you know, the only thing we've ever observed is the inside of our own consciousness. And we, we look around, here's this beautiful world out there. And I look at it, all the trees and the clouds and at night, the beautiful stars and the night sky. And I think I'm looking at all this stuff out there. But one of the deepest and most profound lessons of quantum physics is that you never experience a world, a physical world independent 
of your um, mental space, of your mental identity. Uh, and, and this is a very important concept. So basically what we're talking about here is bringing to life the reality of a philosophical position known as objective idealism. Now, other synonyms for objective idealism would be analytic idealism, uh, metaphysical idealism, ontological idealism. They're all really talking about the same thing. And that is that ultimately, you know, you and I were kind of trained to believe that there is bottom up causality. That is, we study, you know, break this, tear this world down into the tiniest little parts, go down, 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 down into the tiniest little piece of the universe, go into the uh, cells of the brain, for example, the uh, molecules in, the, in that cell, then, then the atoms, and then the subatomic particles, and you keep going down and down. And what you find is that all these particles interact and that there is a tremendous amount of kind of interplay there. But the mistake that you and I were trained to kind of ignore is that bottom-up causality with all those subatomic particles following the laws of physics, chemistry, and biology does not absolutely determine and yield the universe we see emerging. And when I'm saying that, I say, look back on human history. And are, are we to believe that, that all of the events of human history and what we can you know, write about and talk about that goes back thousands of years or even millions of years when we look at the history of planet Earth, uh, are we to assume that all of that was just the random chaotic jostling of atoms, molecules, electrons, photons, you know, in this huge soup of, uh, mm. of subatomic particles and that, you know, it's meaningless, purposeless and that there's nothing to it? No. And yet there are absolute, what I would say, kind of raving madmen out there who try and pretend that we have no free will and that there is super determinism. These are some of the hardest core materialists. And what they are missing is that what we experience is the mental universe. We experience a perceptual world. Uh, it's not naked reality. And in fact, there is not a naked reality we can identify where we can absolutely identify time, space, mass, energy, and completely in their native element, explain exactly what they're doing and all the causal forces of nature. Mm. And that's because ultimately all we're experiencing are the events of this mental universe. And yes, there are natural physical laws that are very important to understand. But in terms of the will unfolding, especially in a world with sentient beings, where we might postulate free will, what you find is that there is a tremendous amount of evidence that we truly have free will. And where that comes in is through quantum physics and an acknowledgement that, you know, even if we accept what modern neuroscience would try and tell you, that is every single belief, thought, attitude, perception, every kind of mental phenomenal experience, every atom of that that you have uh, as a sentient being, um, you know, is being um, uh, determined by these neurons that in fact are completely quantum computers. Don't even begin to think of a neuron as behaving like a deterministic Newtonian mechanistic machine, you know, where the ions in the ion channels and the, the neurotransmitters and synaptic vesicles and all the, the atomic constituents within microtubules are following some, you know, uh, law mechanistic. of physics. They're yeah. not. They're actually being driven by this top-down mental causal, mental layer of the universe. Now, if you want to see this from a quantum physics perspective, the simplest way, um, just uh, there's a beautiful essay by Richard Kahn Henry, who is in uh, physics at Johns Hopkins. And in this essay, you can go to the scientific journal Nature, uh, 2005, look for Richard Kahn Henry, you'll find a one-page essay on mental universe. And he makes it crystal clear how quantum physics and thinking about it had evolved by that point to real people realizing that it's telling us that that physical universe out there does not exist independent of the uh, mind of the observer. And that in fact, uh, as he puts it at the end of that one page essay, mental universe, he says that the universe is purely mental and spiritual. It's not physical or mechanical. Uh, and that is really where it goes. This is one of the deep mysteries of quantum physics. It's taken a long time to work our way through that century of understanding. Uh, again, this is a topic we discuss in a lot of detail in Living in a Mindful Universe. 
because uh, quantum physics is absolutely essential to understanding this notion of free will and the fact that we live in a perceptual universe that is completely dependent on the mind of the observer. And the reason all this is important is because of where we go in that book, Living in a Mindful Universe, for putting uh, objective uh, uh, idealism to work. As a, as a philosophical principle. And this is where things like placebo effects, spontaneous remission, miraculous healing and NDEs all starts to make more sense. The power of prayer starts to make more sense. When you hear all these millions of NDE stories going back thousands of years from all cultures of people encountering this incredibly powerful, loving uh, God source that's right there as you know, at home, this is not some deity like Old Testament, you know, right. outside not, of not, not, not an old man sitting personal. on a chair with a beard, right? You know, it's, and so uh, this, is, this is all very crucial because what we're trying to do here is show how objective idealism can work as a philosophical position. And what you do is you take the brain and you realize that all those ion channels and microtubules and synaptic vesicles are simply allowing the brain, this incredibly complex machine, to work as a modeling device to serve as a local host for that mind. But it's a shared mind. That's the most important thing. Uh, and we think we this is all our own little mental experience. Well, guess what? Uh, in the scientific world, there's plenty of good evidence for telepathy. For example, read Guillaume Playfair's book on twin telepathy. He estimates 35% of identical twins have such powerful wow. uh, te telepathic experiences that we know that telepathy is an absolutely real feature of our modern world. Look at remote viewing and all the work that has been done there to show the power of mind to discern information at a distance and across time. You know, the uh, secret uh, spy program, psychic what about, spy program. What about people, like you mentioned in your book, Susan Rentes, what about people also that exist that have potential abilities to somehow have some kind of connection to the afterlife or other unusual, like, psychic paranormal, like paranormal, whatever you want to call them, uh, abilities? What's well, uh, For psychic mediums, yeah, go to winbridge.org. Mm -hmm. uh, and what you'll find is a tremendous amount of evidence of, uh, that has been assembled there uh, by Julia and Mark. Uh, they do a tremendous amount of work in this field. Mm. Uh, and they have a quintuply blinded way of assessing psychic mediums. And at the end of the day, what you end up wondering when you study all this, given that the medium only gets a first name, that's it. That's mm. all they get. So mm. how in the world? And, and they don't want more information. In fact, they discourage you from giving them more information. And the reason is, if you give them more information, it tends to give them what they call analytic overlay. And they, in other words, they start using the rational brain, logical mind to think it through and give mm. you an expected answer. And that's a mistake because the true answers are there. Uh, and, and so this whole notion of the one mind is incredibly powerful. I love it how at the end of his uh, Bigelow essay, the second place winner, Pim Van Lommel, at the end of, uh, uh, he's a Dutch cardiologist and he wrote a beautiful second place essay in BigelowInstitute.org uh, winning essays. But at the end of it, he's making an argument, just as I do, as we do in Living in the Mindful Universe, for this one mind and the brain is a filter. And he says that the four greatest scientific resources for this one mind hypothesis, and I highly recommend his recommendations. One is Larry Dossi's book, One Mind, which is absolutely world changing. Uh, and then there's another book, recent book by Steve Taylor called Spiritual Science, which goes hugely in the very same direction to help uh, do it. But but from a different uh, set of perspectives and, and kind of starting points. And then he also, Pim Van Lommel, also recommends Bernardo Kastrup's paper, and I think it's in Journal of uh, Consciousness Studies in 2018. It's called The Universe in Consciousness. And then finally, Pim Van Lommel recommends our book, Living in a Mindful Universe. And that I would say, yes, that I, uh, you know, kind of self-promoting, promotingly, <laughs> uh, it, it is a, a work to go a long way towards uniting the science and spirituality on this. But the one mind hypothesis is very important. That's basically what NDEers are telling us is when they get to that realm, when they've been liberated from the shackles of brain and, and body in this uh, you know, reality, uh, they say in, in that realm where your life review, where all the events of your life, you relive them. 
to learn these deep and profound lessons. I mean, that's showing you something very powerful. And not only that, but you're feeling the impact of your thoughts and actions on others around you. Do you think that, that Dr. Xander, do you think this message, though, should be comforting to people? Those are a couple of things I want to get to. You know what I mean? So many people, probably myself included, as much as I study spirituality, you're afraid of death. You're afraid of losing your loved ones here on earth. You're, you know, you're afraid of them, of them departing. Do you think your experience and, and obviously the tremendous work you've done all over all these years, does it make you less fearful? Does it, you know, totally. yeah. there, there is nothing to fear about death. It's a tremendous adventure. It's being liberated from the shackles of the prison uh, and being, you know, freed back up into the higher soul that we are reuniting with souls of departed loved ones. Uh, it's very important to get. Now, murder and suicide are wrong. We won't go into a yes, lot of details of about that, <laughs> but they are absolutely wrong. And that is something in the ears experienced firsthand in these life reviews and in this beautiful witnessing of that God force and of love in that world is one should never take away another's life. And that's why homicide is wrong. Suicide is the improper answer. Now, I'm not saying that people who have interminable physical, mental, emotional suffering because of some illness, that there's not an argument for euthanasia in certain settings. Okay, I would say that is a possibility. I'm not making Mm -hmm. that statement here, but the statement I am making is that murder and suicide as a general principle are wrong. Uh, And we're here to live our lives. Life is a sacred gift. Uh, And this is where I would say that warfare and violent crime against others is the wrong answer. And from that perspective, I would say some of the lessons coming back from NDEs are absolutely essential for our world to survive and to thrive moving forward. These lessons of love, compassion, kindness, forgiveness, acceptance, mercy are essential for all of us to get. Now, the other big thing I'll point out here is I cannot imagine if I had gone through the rest of my life still thinking that materialist mindset that I had before my coma was correct. And then imagine what it would be like to get to the very end of my life, reunite with my loved ones who have left this world, find out the afterlife is absolutely real, find out that the only goal of life is to really love self and love others by serving as a conduit for love, kindness, compassion, and mercy coming from the very source, that God source of pure love at the core of the universe. And the more we spend our lives sharing that beautiful gift with others and bringing that love into this world, the more our lives thrive and flourish and uh, lead to where we're supposed to go with souls. Now, if we completely miss that lesson until we're on our deathbed, what a waste. My gosh, it is just worth knowing way in advance that the materialist model and this puny little version of self and this game of whoever has those toys when he dies wins, mm-hmm. uh, that's all false. And, and the sooner our world comes to realize this and that that false sense of separation that's inherent in materialist thinking is very deadly. It's the reason our world is in so much trouble now with corporate greed, climate change, you know, the oil companies uh, and all of what they're doing uh, in terms of uh, uh, profiteering, building up our CO2 and, and global warming, mm-hmm. uh, extinction events. All this is... Uh, should make us pause and reconsider our worldview and start addressing one that is much more conducive to a fulfilling life and one there where we're actually doing some good for ourselves and for the world at large. God, you've made this interview so amazing and easy because every time I wanted to go like, you know, prepare myself to the next thing, you answered the question because I was going to ask, um, you know, again, also in Kabbalah, you know, they sort of teach the purpose of this existence is what called tikkun olam, meaning repair the world. And you really said it just beautifully in your own words. I mean, why are we here? I mean, I, I know that goes through my mind sometimes when you see someone who leaves this world, you think to yourself, you know, did they no longer have anything to give to this world? You know, why? What the gift of being here and and something else you just said gave me chills. You know, it was actually uh, I think I read it in a book by Naomi Remen. I don't know if you've heard of her. She's wonderful. She she actually was was the head for many years at um, that uh, at Commonweal Cancer Program. You know, she's a physician, tremendous woman, written a couple of great books. But one story she told, and I think it was in this book, Kitchen Table Wisdom, she talked about I think she was at Cornell Medical School at the time and this very famous doctor 
was being honored. It was, he had just like, basically it was the end of his career. He had made a lot of amazing discoveries, you know, and they were there all to celebrate his amazing career. And, you know, she went up to him like a bunch of the students after to, to make a little chit chat and talk with him, uh, you know, to congratulate him. But I forgot how it came out, but he sort of, when he was talking to her, cause she's a very spiritual person. He had this look in his eye when he started talking to her, he goes, I made all these discoveries. He goes, but I still never understood, like essentially the essence of life. You know what uh-huh. I mean? Like he felt, you know, and, she's, and she saw this pain in him. And, you know, when reading that in the book, I realized, you know, you don't have to be a world famous scientist. I mean, all of us grapple with that, you know, our, you know to some degree, that reason for our existence. What are we here for? What can we do? And I, I guess that was my sort of my final question on this, like the purpose of life which I think you kind of answered, but is there anything else you would want to add to why do you think each one of us is still here um, and what we should, you know, keep our eye on the ball as you basically were just saying. Well, I would say within a, a probably a year and a half of my coma, I came to realize, I, I read, read that beautiful book by Pierre Teilhard de Chardin, Phenomenon of Man. He was a French paleontologist. So he's a scientist interested in long time scales, billions of years. He was also a French Jesuit priest, so he was very spiritual. There were huge debates going on about Darwin and, and biological selection back in the mid-20th century when he wrote this book. And what he realized was evolution was definitely going on, but in a much bigger fashion than what was being talked about. It wasn't just about biological systems on Earth, but uh, what was he, he was seeing was this gigantic evolution of consciousness throughout the universe. And I came to realize that that is very much true. And I think that's what, you know, intelligent species bring to any kind of biological system is the the possibility for great kind of enhancement of understanding and kind of knowing of one's relationship with the universe. And if there is a purpose for being of hopefully discovering that purpose. And so this is where. Uh, I think so much of this is valuable because we find that uh, just like that old saying, all politics is local, you know, (laughs) all evolution of all consciousness throughout the universe is local. It's nothing more than individual sentient beings coming to a deeper understanding of their own reasons for existence and in a relationship with the universe at large and their capabilities for both gleaning knowledge from that universe and also shifting it in a positive direction. And I think once you start realizing all that, you realize you have a lot more power than just some little physical being birthed to death and nothing more, that you're playing a much bigger role. And this is where meditation, centering prayer on a daily basis, for me, have been very important. They've helped me to get into regular touch with kind of the higher soul and that that God force, that primordial mind, but in a way that I can try and bring back that uh, that evolution, that benefit for all of sentience, for all of life throughout this cosmos. I want to try and make it better. And it's not about, you know, the self and the ego and the ego and the self can lead us to a lot of toxicity, a lot of damage. I mean, anybody who works in alcoholism, addiction work knows how badly the ego can kind of twist you up and get you in trouble. And the ego is all about self-focus. And much of what we're talking about here, the one mind, primordial mind, this brain is a filter uh, and love and compassion, kindness, mercy. All of that is about this notion of treating others as if, you know, if I hurt another, I'm hurting myself. I mean, Mm. that's the deep truth. Mm. Uh, There's a a beautiful book I highly recommend about religions in general, uh, and it compares them to NDEs and uses NDEs as the gold standard. And it takes the five main faiths on earth today and compares them to the lessons from NDEs. The book is by Christopher Copps, C-O-P-P-E-S. Uh, he's uh, the, one of the founders of the uh, a Dutch community of International Association of Near-Death Studies. And his book does a beautiful job of pointing out um, you know, how all religions have tried to get us to this place. They, they've done it with varying degrees of success over time, but that the NDEs are really the tip of the spear that allow us to finally make this shift, unify the religions behind the deep meditative and prayerful practices, ignore the stupid uh, uh, ideologies that are conflicting, that try and put down other religions, at, you know, at, at the 
for you know saying mine is the only real religion, the others are fake. Right. Well, that's false because the deepest meditative traditions bring them together in a beautiful way. And in fact, you'll find that uh, you know what separates them from the NDEs is probably more important than what aligns them with it in terms of coming to a deeper understanding of all this. But really, this is about shifting our worldview to not be so me focused and much more on focus on the world at large, like Kabbalah has, has done for, uh, you know, thousands of years and yeah. other deep uh, spiritual traditions uh, have also attempted to do. And this is where I think this world can upshift and change dramatically for the better. The more all of us start to realize we're in this together to hurt another is to hurt ourselves. The golden rule, treat others as you would like to be treated is written into the very fabric of the universe in the form of these life reviews that go back thousands of years across all belief systems. So it's just time to wake up to this reality. And I would say for those who need a good starting point, dive into BigelowInstitute.org to those essays. They're there for free, available to the public. Tell all your friends, uh, the more people read these and understand this bigger view of reality, the better a place the world will be. Well, I am speechless after this interview. I mean, a lot of times, you know, I look forward to interviewing someone, especially someone who I've read their articles or their books. This went not only not only met my expectations, it went beyond my expectations. I'm so glad that so, I could be Dr. Well. Hudson, I can't, I can't thank you enough for coming on. Uh, is there anywhere you'd like um, our listeners to, to go and follow any of the work that you're doing? Absolutely. If they go to Eben, that's E-B is in Baker, E-N, Alexander.com. Mm-hmm. Uh, the FAQ page there has a lot of very pertinent information. The blog postings uh, have a lot going for them. The I have a reading list there with more than 100 books mm-hmm. and articles, and a lot of them are hot links directly to the scientific papers, et cetera. Mm-hmm. It's all categorized. So explore that website. Also, sacredacoustics.com for people who want to learn more about differential frequency brainwave entrainment and deep meditative techniques, go to sacredacoustics.com. That's uh, the website of my partner, Karen Newell. She's my life partner and also co-author of the third book, Living in a Mindful Universe, full disclosure about that relationship. Uh, And also I would encourage people to visit unitedinhopeandhealing.com. That is a website. Karen set it up of Uh, Early in the pandemic, she thought since all of our jobs were canceled, let's invite the people who we would be meeting, all the scientific researchers on consciousness, globally renowned, many experiencers, et cetera. Let's interview them. And every two weeks we did that. Those interviews are available for free at unitedinhopeandhealing.com. There also are several other avenues of learning available at that website. Uh, You'll find out when you go visit. And there's just a lot more that people can learn about all this. And of course, don't forget Bigelow and Institute.org. And of course, the books, Proof of Heaven, The Map Absolutely. of Heaven, and especially Living in a Mindful Universe. Uh, and I can I tell you, Living in a Mindful Universe is the true sequel to my story, to Proof of Heaven. Mm. Map of Heaven was my attempt to try and show people how common these experiences are. Because people, you know, some people would come up to me and say, oh, you're this neurosurgeon Marvard who had this experience. And I'd say, no, 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 these are very common. Millions of people have them. Uh, so to dispel that, that myth that, you know, I was one of these weirdos reporting this kind of thing, and that was in isolation from most of humanity. No, that's mm-hmm. not the case. But my personal story is all told in Proof of Heaven and then mm-hmm. Living in a Mindful Universe. By the way, the writing was terrific. Uh, I guess the last thing I'll say is, obviously, it was a gift that you were given this second chance in life, but I think it was a gift to all of us that you put down in paper your experience and helping to change all of our lives. So thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast. Thank you, Dean. Thanks for having me on. And thanks for getting this out to the world. You did a great job with that. And I appreciate it.